0: There's so many ways women unconsciously settle in life, unknowingly declining the abundance available because of their beliefs. There's so many ways that women say no to their deepest desires because they don't understand how fear and limitations show up in their body. Too many women are saying no to themselves and it impacts all of us. I'm here to change this. I've helped thousands of women say yes to more, leaning in and allowing a life that once found impossible. If you need one-on-one coaching or would like to join us on one of our retreats, please visit our website at podcast.com. Welcome to Basic to Bougie the podcast, a totally new experience—one you're sure to love. We've taken our passion of business finance, relationships, hot topics, and more, and collided them as a sisterhood into what we now call womenhood. Join your host, Melissa Martin, the success coach, and now an author, a certified NLP life, business, and financial coach, hypnotherapy expert and one-bed mamma-jamma businesswoman on this wild ride as we detour through life, showing you how to take the basics and turn them into what we call the bougie. Let's dive on in. Welcome back. Hey, hey, it's Melissa. I am doing a back to back podcast today. So this will be part one of a part two. And if you listened last night, then this is a part three. It's amazing that I have time to do this today. And I'm super humble and super thankful to have you here. Let's dive on in. You know, as we start talking about cultivating and as we start talking about being resilient and all of the things, I think we definitely have to talk about cultivating a resilient spirit and letting go of numbing and the powerlessness that comes along with it. You know, there are people that can never go back and make some of the details pretty, but all of us want to do is move forward and make the whole thing beautiful and resilience is the ability to overcome adversity. And it has been a growing topic since I can actually remember. And in a world plagued by stress and struggle and everyone from psychologists to psychiatrists and social workers want to know why and how some folks are better at recovering from hardships than others. We want to know and understand why some people can cope with stress and trauma in a way that allows them to move forward in their lives and why other people appear more affected and stuck. Now, I recognize that many of the people I interview or many of my clients are describing stories of resilience, and I hear stories about people cultivating wholehearted lives despite adversity. Now, I've learned about people's capacities in to stay mindful and authentic under great stress and anxiety, and I hear people describe how they're able to transform trauma into wholehearted thrivingness. And it isn't difficult to recognize that these stories of tales of resilience because I've been there. You know, in my heyday of resiliences, I've been there. You know, through trials and tribulations, I've been there. But I also know these narratives are threaded with what we call protective factors. And the things we do and have are practices that give us the bounce, right? So I want to talk about what makes up resilience, okay? If you look up resilience, here are the five most common factors of resilient people. They're resourceful and they have good problem-solving skills. They're more likely to seek help. They hold the belief that they can do something that will help them manage their feelings and cope. They have social support available to them. They are connected with others such as family or friends. Now, of course, more factors depending on the research, but there, these and those are the big ones. And at first, I hoped that the patterns that I observed with my clients and during all of my studies would lead me to a very straightforward conclusion resilience is a core component of wholeheartedness. But just like the other things we speak of, there isn't something that just points it out. There's something more to what I was hearing. And the stories that my clients tell me and the stories that I come across are more common than just resilience. All those stories were about spirit, according to everyone that I talked to literally everyone, the very foundation of the protective factors, the things that made them bouncy, and I'm using the word bouncy for a reason, and I'll talk about that later, is because of spirituality. In spirituality, I'm not talking about religion or theology. I'm talking about a shared and deep, deeply held belief. Here's how the divine works with spirituality. Spirituality is recognized and celebrated that we are all incredibly connected to each other by a power greater than all of us and that our connection to power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. Practicing spirituality brings a sense of perception, meaning, and purpose in our lives. Without expectation and exception, spirituality, the belief in connection, a power greater than self, and interconnections grounded in love and compassion emerged as a component of resilience. Most people speak of God. I know I do, but not everyone. Some were occasionally churchgoers. Some were not. Some were. Some worshipped at fishing holes or temples or mosques or at home. Some struggled with the idea of religion, and others were devout members of organized religion. The one thing that they all had in common was spirituality as the foundation of their resilience— And from this foundation of spirituality, three other significant patterns emerged and as so being an essential vibe to resilience. One, cultivating hope. Two, practicing critical awareness. Three, letting go of numbing and taking the edge off vulnerability, discomfort, and pain. And I want to take a look at each one of these and how they're connected to resilience and spirits. Now, I want to say to you, if you're easily triggered, this might not be the best podcast for you today, just because we're diving a little deeper and we're diving into this stuff. And this isn't a very, you know, fun and light and loose podcast. The next one after this might be. So if you're one of those, pause, love yourself with love and light and come back later. For those that want to dive a little deeper, let's dive on in because I want to talk about hope and powerlessness. You know, I can't think of two words that are more misunderstood than the words hope and power. As soon as I realized that hope is an important piece of wholehearted living, I started digging deeper and found, literally found that like most people, I always thought that hope as an emotion is like a warm feeling of optimism and possibility. But I was wrong. I was shocked to discover that hope is not an emotion. It's a way of thinking or a cognitive process. Emotion plays a supportive role, but hope is really a thought process made up of what is called a trilogy of goals, pathways, and agencies. And in very simple term, hope happens when we have the ability to set realistic goals. Basically, I know where I want to go. We are able to figure out how to achieve these goals, including the ability to stay flexible and develop alternative routes. I know how. I know how to get there. I'm persistent, and I can tolerate disappointment and try again. And we believe in ourselves. I can do this. So hope is a combination of setting goals, having the tenacity and the perseverance to pursue them, and believing in our own abilities. And if that's not enough, here's something else. Hope is learned. It is a learned, hopeful, goal-directed thinking in the context of ourselves and people. Children most often learn that hope is from their parents and learning that hopefulness in children that they need relationships that are characterized by boundaries consistency and support and i think that it's so empowering to know that we have the ability to teach our children how to hope it's not a crapshoot it's a conscientious choice i also found that to participant that to participate with participants who self report as hopeful but considerable and being considerate in value on persistence and the hard work in this new cultural belief that everything should be fun, fast, and easy is also very inconsistent with hopeful thinking. It also sets us up for hopefulness. And when we experience something that is difficult and that requires significant time and effort, we are quick to think this is supposed to be easy. It's not worth the effort or this should be easy easier. It's only hard and slow because I know I'm not good at it. But hopeful self-talk sounds more like this is tough, but I can do it. But I can do it. Now, on the other hand, for those for those of us who have the tendencies to believe that everything worthwhile should involve pain and suffering. I've also learned that never fun and fast, and easy is as detrimental to hope as always fun, fast, and easy. And giving my ability to chase on a goal and bulldog it until it surrenders from pure exhaustion. I resented learning this. And before I started on this path that I am on, and in this life that I am on, I believe that unless blood, sweat, and tears were involved, it must not be important. I was wrong. Again. And as we develop a hope-minded mindset, we, we understand that some worthy endeavors will be difficult and time-consuming and not enjoyable at all. But hope also requires us to understand that just because the process of reaching a goal happens, it happens to be fun and fast and easy doesn't mean that it has less value than a difficult goal. If we want to cultivate hopefulness, we have to be willing to be flexible and demonstrate perseverance. Not every goal will look the same. Tolerance for disappointment, determination, and a belief in self are the heart of hope. You know, I spent a significant time with teachers of different lands, spaces, and time, as I say, and different studies and, and the things that give me the letters after my name. And over the last years, I have become increasingly concerned that we are raising children who have little tolerance for disappointment, and that some who come from various forms of privilege, including race and class, have a strong sense of entitlement. But entitlement is very different than agency. Entitlement is... I deserve this just because I want it. And agency is, I know I can do this. The combination of fear, of disappointment, entitlement, and performance pressure is a recipe for hopelessness and self-doubt. No, hopelessness is a dangerous, dangerous slope because it leads to the feelings of powerless, powerlessness. And unlike the word hope, we often think of power as negative, and it's not. And the best form of power, the best form comes from Dr. Martin Luther King, and he describes power as the ability to achieve our purpose and to affect change. Now, on the specific topic, I pulled different people, different quotes, because I wanted to stand in the conversation and stand In What I'm saying, because it means something to me. It means something to you. Because if we question our need for power, think about it like this. How do you feel when you believe that you are powerless to change something in your life? Powerlessness is dangerous. For most of us, the inability to affect change is a desperate feeling. We need resilience, and we need hope, and we need spirit that can carry us through the doubt and the fear. We need to believe that we can affect change if we want to love and live with our whole hearts. Now, practicing critical awareness is the ability of reality checking the message and the expectations that drive the never-good-enough gremlins, From the time we wake up to the time our head hits the pillow at night. We are bombarded with messages of expectations about every aspect of our life, from the magazine ads and the TV commercials to the movies and the music we listen to. We're told exactly what we should think, look like, and how much we should weigh to how much we should offer to whom, when, and how, how we should parent, how we should decorate our homes, which car we should drive. It is absolutely overwhelming, and in my opinion, no one is immune. Trying to avoid social media is like holding your breath to avoid air pollution. It is just not going to happen. It's in our biology to trust what we see with our eyes. This makes living in a carefully edited, overproduced, and photoshopped world very dangerous. If we want to cultivate a resilient spirit and stop falling prey to comparing our ordinary lives with manufactured images, we need to know how to reality check what we see. We need to be able to ask and answer these questions. Is what I'm seeing real? Do these images convey real life or fantasy? Do these images reflect healthy, wholehearted living, or do they turn my life, my body, my family, and my relationship into objects of commodities? Who benefits by saying these and feeling bad along the way? This is usually always about money and or control because control seems to be what people want but seem to lack the innate ability to understand what control really is and what it really isn't. You know, In addition to being essential to resilience, practicing critical awareness is actually one of the four elements of shame in resilience because shame works like the zoom lens on a camera. When we're feeling shame, the camera is zoomed in tight and we all see our flawed selves alone and struggling. We think to ourselves, I'm the only one with a muffin top or I'm the only one with a family who is messy and loud and out of control. Am I the only one not having sex 4.3 times per week? Something's wrong with me. I'm alone. But when we zoom out to see that all of that is bullshit, we start to see a completely different picture. We see many people are in the same struggle rather than thinking, I'm the only one. Instead, we start thinking, I cannot believe it. You too? I'm normal. I thought it was just me or something to the accord. Once we start to see the big picture, we are better able to be in our own reality check or our shame triggers. And the messages and expectations that we were never good enough simply start to disappear. And as I mentioned earlier, practicing spirituality brings perspective, meaning and purpose to our lives. When we allow ourselves to become culturally conditioned to believe that we are not good enough or we are not enough and that we don't make enough or have enough, it damages our core soul. And this is why I think practicing critical awareness and reality checking is much about spirituality as it is critical thinking. Now, we've all done it or 90% of the world has done it. We numb, we take the edge off. When we're struggling, with day-to-day, worthiness, love, compassion, eagerness to fit in, are just the next damn steps of the day. You know, I say a lot, when you cannot take another step, just take another breath. And I mean it. Because when we talk about how we deal with difficult emotions such as shame, grief, fear, despair, disappointment, and sadness. I hear over and over again the need to numb and take the edge off of feelings that cause vulnerability, discomfort, and pain. Participants describe engaging in behaviors that numbed their feelings or helped them to avoid experiences and pain. And the reasons I say participants is because my clients to me are so sacred that I will never name I will never shame. And so when you are a client or you're in one of my classes, we're just going to now call you guys participants. It's easier. It flows off my tongue a little better. And I can categorize it that way. You know, some of these are fully aware that their behaviors had a numbing effect, while others did not seem to make that connection. And when I talk and when I've done these classes and when I've done one-on-one with them, I've described living as a wholehearted life about the same topic. And people consistently talked about trying to feel the feelings, staying mindful about the numbing behaviors, staying on it and trying to lean into the discomfort of the hard emotion. Now, I know this is critically important finding in my participants, but I've also spent hundreds of hours interviewing, trying to be better knowledgeable and understand the consequences of numbing and how talking and taking the edge off of these behaviors is related to an addiction. And here's what I've learned. Most of us engage in behaviors consciously or unconsciously that help us to numb to take the edge of vulnerability, pain, and discomfort. And addiction can be described as a chronically and compulsively numbing and taking the edge off of feelings. We cannot selectively numb emotions. When we numb the painful emotion, we also numb the positive emotion as well. The most powerful emotion that we experience have very sharp points like the tip of a thorn. When they prick us, they cause discomfort and even pain Just the anticipation of fear of these feelings can trigger intolerable vulnerability in us. We know it's coming. And for many of us, our first response is the vulnerability is the pain of these sharp points. And it's not to lean into the discomfort and feel our way through it, but rather to make it just go the actual hell away. We do that by numbing and taking the edge off of the pain with whatever provides the quickest relief with the quickest relief. We can use whatever quickest relief with a whole bunch of stuff, including alcohol, drugs, food, sex, relationships, money, work, caretaking, gambling, staying busy, affairs, chaos, shopping, planning, perfectionism, constant change, or the damn internet. But before we do that, or before this is done, or before I even knew what this was, I thought that numbing and taking the edge off was just about addiction, but I don't believe that anymore. Now I believe that everyone numbs to take the edge off and that addiction is about engaging in these behaviors compulsively and chronically, and that the people whom I'm describing as fully engaged and wholehearted living were not immune to the numbing, but the primary difference seemed to be that they were aware of the dangers of numbing and had developed the ability to feel their way through high vulnerability experiences. High vulnerability experiences. And I definitely believe that genetics and neurological or neurobiological can play a critical role in addiction. But I also believe that there are countless people out there struggling with numbing and taking the edge off because the disease model of addiction doesn't fit their experiences as closely as a model that takes numbing process into consideration. Not everyone's an addict and not everyone's addiction is the same. I'm very familiar with addiction, and if you've been with me a while, then you know that I've had my own share of addiction in my family, and I've always been upfront about my experiences, but it wasn't until I started working with my clients, with my participants, and doing research that I started to understand the core of the struggle, and now I get it because I was confused, and my confusion stemmed from the fact that I never felt completely in sync with the recovery community with the 12 steps because the 12 steps are powerful and profoundly important principles in life, but not everything about the recovery movement fits all. For example, millions of people owe their lives to the power that comes from saying, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. That doesn't fit for everyone, even though the gratefulness for sobriety has radically changed lives. Saying those words has always felt Dispowering for some and strangely disingenuous for others, but also 100% right on as well. I've often thought if I felt out of place in this confusion, then maybe others have. Because if you quit so many things at one time, you're having a high perplexity of the very high bottom. For example, I quit drinking because I wanted to learn about my true self and my wild party girl persona kept getting in the way. Or someone looked at me one night and said, you have a platter of addictions, a little bit of everything. To be safe, it would be best if you just quit drinking, smoking, comfort eating, or getting in your family's business, etc, etc. No one's addiction is the same, and not everyone who indulges has an addiction. But to be able to bring power and knowledge to all of this is to be eye opening, not self diagnosing. You know, I remember being somewhere and someone throwing a fork across the table and saying, Well, this shit's over. And I guess this is just how it's going to be. And I remember sitting there distinctly and going, Well, I guess I'm going to have to leave because I've never found in any instance where, if a problem arises and that's the end conclusion to someone's innate ability to deal with an addiction, a problem whatever you want to call it, the degree that that obviously made that person feel and knowing now after that they were in the steps of sobriety, it's, it's hard. It's, it's cumbersome. It's, it's, it's got the shame in it and it shouldn't because we are all human beings. We are all living in one humanness. I've spent my entire life trying to outrun vulnerability and uncertainty. And I most certainly wasn't raised with the skills and emotional practice to, that needed to lean into discomfort. So over time, I basically became my own therapist, my own, I'm going to fix it. So I know what it's like to feel the pain of something. And for others, they unfortunately are still rolling with it. And to be honest, I probably am too at certain parts of my life, but I'm learning that describing what is going on in our lives and talking about it the way that we need to will help us in all of our pursuits. You know, this topic and this subject is so hard. And... I deal a lot with PTSD trauma with a lot of my clients. I deal with a lot of financial stuff with my clients. I deal with a lot of relationship stuff with my clients. And addiction is one that we started taking on about 2 years ago. And it's been really interesting. I've 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 always known about it. I've always had it on the forefront. I've always had it in my backpack, so to say, but for me, I worry about those of us who talk about the addictions that I didn't talk about, like being a workaholic, like being addicted to the success or being addicted to being so perfect, we forget about being in the moment, being in Ourselves, knowing ourselves, loving ourselves, to be able to love someone else. You know, I had a couple of friends respond to something that I posted recently, and we were talking about something specific. And one of them said, I'm at the take the edge off alcoholic with concern about blanks habits. I drink a couple glasses of wine every night. Is that bad? I always shop when I'm stressed or depressed. I come out of my own skin if I'm not always going and staying busy. Now, for me, being who I am, I can resonate with that. I can understand it. I can internalize it. But at the same accord, it's still an addiction. It's just the level of one. And not one is better, different, or worse than the other. It's a matter of what we're willing to accept and where we're ready to step into our oneness And when we're ready to step out of it and accept it and change it, because it's a problem when it's problematic in your life. And until we're willing to admit the problems, we're never going to change that. You know, because all of it doesn't stop us from being emotionally irregular. It doesn't necessarily help us from being emotionally honest, but setting boundaries helps And feeling like we're enough is something I think some of us are going to struggle with our whole lives. But does that keep us from staying out of judgment and feeling like we're connected? Mm. Are we using blank to hide or escape from the reality of our lives? Now, listen, I get it, right? I get it. I get what you're thinking. But understanding these behaviors and feeling through vulnerability and looking through a vulnerability lens rather than strictly through an addiction lens changes lives. And that's the point of this. Because that will strengthen your commitment to whether it's your sobriety your abstinence, your health, your spirituality, because I can, de- I can define and I can definitely say, hi, my name is Melissa and I'd like to deal with my blank today, right? And that feels uncomfortably honest. Because in an- another unexpected discovery along the way of all of this, this also taught me that there's no such thing as selective emotional numbing. There is a full spectrum of human emotions and when we numb the dark, we also numb the light. And when I was taking the edge off or when my participants were taking the edge off of the pain, of the vulnerability, we were also unintentionally dulling the experiences of the good feelings like joy and looking back, I cannot imagine finding how that has changed what our daily lives would look like more than this. Because now I lean into joy. I know most of you lean into joy, even when it makes us feel tender and vulnerable. And in fact, I expect tender and vulnerability no matter what shit I am walking through. And I know most of you feel the same. Because joy is as thorn and sharp as any of the dark emotions. And to love someone fiercely, to believe in someone with your whole heart, to celebrate a fleeting moment in time, to fully engage in a life that doesn't come from guarantees, these are the risks that involve vulnerability and often pain. When we lose our tolerance for discomfort, we lose joy. And in fact, addiction research shows us that an intensely positive experience is likely to cause relapse as an intensely painful experience. Now, I know you're thinking, Melissa, this is deep. This is a lot. I'm confused, and I get that. But here's the bottom line. We can't make a list of all the bad emotions and say, I'm going to numb these, and then make a list of all the positive emotions and say, I'm going to fully engage in these. You can imagine the vicious cycle this creates. And I don't want you to experience so much joy that you have no reservoir to draw from, that when hard things happen, you can't fall back because they feel even more painful so that you numb. I want you to experience the joy that comes from living in your wholeness and your oneness that these sharp edges have no longer the point to break you. More joy is coming for you in your next chapter of life. The uncomfortability is scary, and leaning in requires both spirit and resilience. And the most difficult thing about what I'm proposing in this podcast today is captured by the question that I get asked a lot, especially from my clients, is, is spirituality a necessity and necessary component for resilience? And based on everything I know, the answer is yes, because the feelings of hopelessness, fear, blame, pain, and discomfort, vulnerability, and disconnection, disconnection, sabotage, resilience. The only experience that seems broad and fierce enough to combat a list like that is the belief that we're all in this together, and that something greater than us has the capacity to bring love, compassion into our lives. Now again, I'm going to say it. I didn't find that one interpretation of spirituality has the corner on the resilience market, but it's not about denominations or dogma. Practicing spirituality is what brings healing and creates resilience. For me, spirituality is connecting with God, and I do that most often through nature, community, music, Reiki, the people who I love, the people who love me, and we all define spirituality in a way that inspires us. Whether we're coming adversity, surviving trauma, or dealing with stress and anxiety, because having a sense of purpose, meaning, and perspective in our own lives allows us to develop and understand and move forward. Because without purpose, meaning, and perspective, it is easy to lose hope and numb our emotions or become overwhelmed by our circumstances. When we feel reduced, less capable, and lost in the face of struggle, The heart of spirituality is not connected, and that's the connection. When we believe in that connection, we won't feel alone. Whew, that was a little deep. I hope that this helped some of you in some way. I'm going to take a small break and gather my notes for our next podcast. And I want you all to be a little gentle on yourselves today and love yourself and stay away from the sharp edges and really think about where you sit in your vulnerability and where you sit in your resilience and what fears that you may have that maybe aren't fears, but it's the fear of the unknown that serves you. Because we're always one step away from greatness. We just have to be willing to take the step. Not a one of us is better than another. Not a one of our lives is worth wondering or loathing or even, heck, wishing we had. It's living the life we were meant to live. And sometimes the struggle has the beauty in it. For Basic to Bougie, I'm Melissa Martin, your success coach. Have a great day.